You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com's podcast. Today, we have a really special guest. Our topic today is extra virgin olive oil and the benefits. And we have a, a researcher from Brown University. His name is Mary Flynn. She's a PhD registered dietitian and nutritionist. She's the associate director of medicine, clinical medicine at Brown University, where she teaches undergraduate courses in nutrition. And she's a research dietitian at the Miriam Hospital, where she's worked since 1984. She also lectures in the Warren Alpert Medical School on nutrition related topics. Her main research interest is how food can be used as medicine, or her main food interest is extra virgin olive oil, which is a passion of mine, as you know. And she's been researching extra virgin olive oil since 1998. In 2013, she co-founded the Olive Oil Initiative at the Merriman Hospital at Brown University. Um, that is a mission for educating the public and the medical community on the health benefits of olive oil. Her website, which you should all go to, is medfooddiet.com, is M-E-D-F-O-O-D diet.com. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. You know, I'm a big <clears throat> fan of olive oil. I think it started many years ago. I went to Italy and we were in, we were in Tuscany and we, we picked the olives ourselves and we, were, we put them in a big bucket and we were all stamping. I don't know if you're supposed to squash them with your feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I once heard that the, that 80% of the microbes in the cheese are from the hands of the cheesemaker, which is a bit scary, right? And I was thinking, I wonder if some of the bugs from that oil that we made all squishing with our feet was a good or a bad batch. I don't know. But, uh, but uh, I was fascinated. And then um, a handful of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, we did a taste test. Some, there was a guy who had uh, olive oil um, company he was selling them and had little those airplane bottles of like liquor but they were all olive oil all these beautiful samples from all over the world and we had about 30 or 40 of them so we had a taste test uh we and one company won this company called fandango which i don't have any financial relationship with i just called them up and said hey you guys won my taste test you mind if i write you up in my article on my website and they're like oh sure sure they turned out to be this beautiful small little farm and they handpicked their olives and they do grow to small in small batches it's all organic and they've won like i think 98 gold medal 98 medals and 50 gold wow. medals at this uh -huh. point so they're really doing it well and then carolyn carrie carol and jerry schaefer from they're the owners of that company they told me about you and so i'm super fascinated by and, and grateful for that invitation and really just a big fan of olive oil there's so much to talk about um, I guess we could, I'd love to just start maybe just a little bit about your history, what got you interested in it, then I want to dive into some of your research and some of the things that you've discovered with regard to olive oil. That sound good? Sure, that sounds fine. So uh, I'm, I started off uh, in 1984 with my master's degree doing research on HDL, HDL metabolism. And at that time, the United States government was moving towards low-fat diets. And I knew from working with HDL that low-fat diets were not going to be good for HDL. So it sort of intrigued me. And I, and I had read a little bit before that about the seven-country study, which I know there were problems with diet reporting in, in a lot of, of studies at that time. But what it showed was if you look at people in their natural setting, which this was before 
1980, I'm sorry, 1960, you look at people in the natural setting and it showed that the, the people using a lot of olive oil were really, really healthy. It also so, showed some health benefits in other studies in Asians. So really low fat, but in the natural population, I thought, why would high fat be good? And I had only been to Italy a few times at that point. And I remember thinking, you know, olive oil tastes good, makes stuff taste good, whatever. So I started reading a little bit, but there wasn't as much literature on it. And then the early 90s, I became interested in breast cancer. And there were uh, three studies out of Europe, Greece, Spain, Italy, showing that women raised on, on olive oil diets did not get as much breast cancer. So I thought, well, the whole country in the United States is going for low-fat diets. What's, what's the thing here? And so I was working on my PhD, 90 to 94, and I was talking about low-fat diets at that time and still looking into olive oil, but there wasn't as much information. And then in the late uh, 90s, like 98, uh, I co-authored a book called Low-Fat Lies, and uh, it was on how low-fat diets were not helpful, but the editor said, you know, you don't like low-fat diets. What do you like? And I said, a Mediterranean diet. And she said, oh, it's too high in fat. It'll make people fat. And I said, no, it won't. If they, you know, if they're not eating, overeating, they'll lose weight. So I did a small non-controlled study, just asking women to eat this way that I, now I propose. And I said, um, try to lose weight. And what they kept saying to me was, um, and I had done research on weight control in the eighties and everyone, you know, people don't like low fat diets because they're hungry. And everyone kept saying, I am not hungry and I'm losing weight. And I thought, wow, how intriguing. They were using olive oil every day, three tablespoons. So I started, um, I took a, a, a pay cut to get, relieve myself of some um, time to work on research. And I started just doing little studies and then was able to get a grant with women with breast cancer, um, comparing my diet to the Cancer Institute diet. And again, people said, I'm not hungry. They lost more weight and they had other benefits. So my other research spun from there. And then, the, the, so the literature on olive oil only started probably around 2000, the real specific research. And what intrigued me was there's no downside. Everything is good. Every, it improves so many things. Um, it's just this host of things which we can get into that it will improve. Plus it tastes good. It's reasonably priced. It has really, it's just a fascinating food, I think. So you mentioned in the very beginning that you were doing research on HCL, right? HDL, 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 yeah. High density lipoprotein, HDL. Oh, HDL. Okay, okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes sense. And in your studies, you found that clearly olive oil has increases HDL. And yeah. it, it also saw in one study, you saw it lowered LDLs, but also it lowered triglycerides as well. Is that true? Mm -hmm. It is true. And, and so triglycerides are blood fat, and they would provide uh, fat to our body for energy. And in the United States, I think because people rely so much on vegetable seed oils, so that's corn, safflower, soybean, that type of oil, those are highly polyunsaturated, so they oxidize. So if you're eating a lot of that uh, in your diet, you're introducing all this oxidation into your body. So the, the ability of olive oil to lower triglycerides is really because it's a fat. Most fat will lower triglycerides anyway, but olive oil doesn't oxidize. If anything, it, it decreases oxidation. So it's like a double benefit. So these other, let's talk about the, the bad oils for just a second, the polyunsaturated sure. fat, yes, the, the, the cooking oils that we use. Is it just the fact that they're polyunsaturated or is it because they're so highly processed, bleached, boiled, and deodorized that makes them bad? That's a good question. I don't know enough about that to comment. I just know that when studies look at, uh, like in Europe, they look at the um, women who have breast cancer in Europe and they look at the breast tissue 
if it's high, high in polyunsaturated fats, that means they've eaten more polyunsaturated fat. And women with breast cancer have higher amounts of polyunsaturated fat in their breast tissue. So it does get into our body, it becomes part of our body. And I do have people ask me about that stripping. Uh, what I do know is canola oil, which is, uh, came on the US market when they realized olive oil was healthy, they thought it was the monounsaturated fat content of olive oil, which is not, it's other things we'll talk about. Uh, but canola oil was created to be a substitute for high monounsaturated fat oil. Uh, but it's, it's stripped, they have to strip these long chain fatty acids in, I think they're like 22, 24 or whatever. And, and apparently it's very unstable because there's this interesting study published in Australia a couple of years ago, showing that when you, if you, you're looking at what do you cook with, extra virgin olive oil, um, olive oil, coconut oil, canola oil, avocado oil, and I want to say grapeseed oil. And what they showed was canola oil was by far the least healthy. It introduced all these polar compounds into the into the food, which was which is really bad. That would really increase oxidation. Mm. And when I read the study, I thought, I wonder if because that's a really processed oil. The other ones are also, but this is more processed because they've got to strip these fatty acids out of it. Right, right. Yeah, because it doesn't exist as canola oil in nature. It has to be no. sort of you made that way. You did a study, I think it was, where one group took olive oil and, and fish and chicken and the other group had canola oil and meat, right? Well, and actually the olive oil group had, they couldn't have red meat, but they had limited fish and seafood. I try to get people to eat at least three days a week vegetarian. So it's olive oil, vegetable and a starch. Olive oil being the juice of the olive fruit. It's really the only olive we have, oil we have that's, that's just natural and it's, it's part of a plant-based diet. Right, right. Would avocado oil be similar or no? Avocado oil is not as proce is not processed like other oils, but it doesn't have health benefits. It hasn't been shown to have any health benefits. The way olive, I think olive is just different because the um, so the the health benefits of plant foods are through these phytonutrients, P H Y T O nutrients, and I, I my thinking is the olive and the grape are so old that they've had to exist in climates for years and years and years. They've developed these really strong phytonutrient content. And that's why I think is two foods, olive oil being the more interesting, uh, but they both have a lot of interesting phytonutrients. And again, I think it's just because they've been around for so long. Mm. Wow, wow. So, so um, you, you did a lot of research on breast cancer. That was your fascination. And what, was it just the fact that women with, a high olive oil diet from those cultures who didn't have as much breast cancer that interests you? And then what was your, you wrote a book about the diet for breast cancer, true, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah, the pink ribbon diet, that that's a, a cookbook. Yeah, yeah, so cookbook. I became interested in- Everybody loves a cookbook and recipe, so talk about that a bit. Okay, all right, so uh, my way of cooking is very simple. It's olive oil, vegetable, and a starch. And it, the, the permutations are limitless. I mean, there are many things you can make, so many starches and vegetables, whatever. So when I started working in breast cancer, my interest came because I had a good friend diagnosed young. She was in her 30s and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I, that was in the 90s. And that's when I became interested in, you know, why are they going towards low fat diets? Because low fat diets increase, um, at that time they were high in carbohydrate. So they would increase fasting blood glucose and fasting insulin, both of which are not good for cancer. Glucose, high blood glucose can potentially feed cancer cells. High insulin can potentially make it, um, make it grow. So they're not good. So I thought, why would this be? And that's where I focused on the breast cancer thing. So um, when I started doing the, uh, the research with the woman, uh, one of the things they said was, this is so easy to cook this way. The food tastes great. Vegetables taste really good. And it's really, really cheap. 
And so that's where I got into a lot of food and security work working in. Uh, this way of cooking is really inexpensive. Most recipes cost, you know, unless you're buying expensive vegetables, most recipes cost less than $1.50 a serving, which is really economical. So um, that's where I get interested in. And then from there, um, one, one or two of the women in that study, they went to a physician who also specialized in prostate cancer. So then he had me working with men with prostate cancer, which was really interesting because both in he, he and I said, can we get men to eat this way? I mean, you hate to be stereotypic, but this is 10, 12 years ago. We were saying, can we get men to eat less meat? Would that really work? And if anything, they embraced it at least as much as the women did. And they ate more vegetables because the olive oil makes it taste better. Um, we also need fat to absorb what makes cancer, vegetables cancer protective, the color in them, the carotenoids. So if you're eating your dark vegetables without fat, we got, it doesn't matter what fat, you have to have some fat there. You're not getting into your body what will fight the cancer. And olive oil makes them taste better. So it's like this really good combination. People eat a lot more vegetables when you tell them to cook them in olive oil. Mm, that's a really beautiful thing. It's a, it's a classic um, understanding in Ayurvedic medicine too. They would always add a little bit of fat to deliver, oh, to deliver yeah, the nutrients as a kind of a bio-enhancer or a carrier. Um, mm -hmm. So like ghee, they would use ghee, and, which is uh, interesting. You know, even today though, after all this time, you know, if you talk to the American Heart Association, they're going to still recommend a, a low-fat diet if you have yeah. heart issues. Yeah, and so it's just—it's just crazy. All right, so I'll tell you what I think it is. I don't—I'm not involved in the Heart Association, but this is my thing. When I um, teach it to my undergrads, in particular, um, the medical students—I I do more lecturing here and there with my undergrads. I get them for a whole semester, and what I say is, so people focus on low-density lipoprotein (LDL). And that has some relationship to heart disease, but it's not, I don't think you can say it's as, as strong as people think it is. And I, I really think it's, it's very much pharmaceutically driven that you need to get it this low because you need more meds to get it low. But what happens is, um, without to get too much on the chemistry of this, but so our bodies make these, 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 um, these packages, these lipoproteins called VLDL, and they make, they carry the fat that we make in our, our body. They carry it out of the liver into the bloodstream. When they break up enough, you're storing fat, they become an LDL. So what happens with a low-fat diet is you end up, you, you get so much triglyceride that you can't break it, you can't effectively break it down to LDL. And so your LDL looks low, but it's because everything's backed up at this other particle. And they look at these apoproteins, ApoB, and the ApoB doesn't change. And so if it isn't changing, you haven't changed anything. So it's, it's so if your focus is on LDL, yes, a low-fat diet sounds good, but if your focus is on overall heart disease prevention, you've got to look at the whole profile, HDL, VLDL, you know, your fasting triglycerides, and, and that's where I think the, the focus gets lost, and so what happens is when people come off a low-fat diet, their LDL goes up, but everything else is improved, and people miss that part of it, so I don't know why, um, I don't know why they're so focused, and now in, um, there's a new rise of these plant, they're called plant docs, and um, it's sort of a new phenomenon. I'm hearing about it from, the, from my medical students, but they're advocating for low-fat diets, and then they just tell people to eat more fiber. I mean, that's, that's not helpful, because people will then will go to the market and start looking at labels, and they find fiber in yogurt. Oh, I'll buy this yogurt. Then I find fiber, you know, in like in a snack bar. I'll buy this. You tell people to eat fruits and vegetables. They do have fiber in them, but fiber is not what makes them healthy. So that's where I think um, it gets confusing. And when I speak to the medical students, I always say, you are trained in medicine and it's great you're being exposed to nutrition, but be very careful going forward 
how you translate this because you will confuse people and then I get them and they'll say, my doctor said a low fat diet. I'm thinking, no, I can't believe low fat diets might be coming back. I just, you know, I just can't believe that people would, would fall for that. Yeah, and, the, and I think you made an interesting point there. Um, the statins, they don't lower triglycerides. They just really lower no. the LDLs. So you end up with, with, a, with the medical profession doing, giving us you know, drugs that lower the LDLs where the independent risk factor for heart disease is clearly triglycerides. And what I also- HDL, yeah, HDL. Yeah, and, and HDL. And, and one study I, sh I, I saw um, in a book, I think it was by uh, Dr. Sinatra, the cardiologist Sinatra, and he did a, uh, wrote a book about the myth of cholesterol. And, and, and they use a, a measurement where you take your triglycerides and divide them by your HDL. And if, that, if it goes into that, if the, if the HDLs go into your triglycerides more than two, then that's probably not so good. If it goes in less than two, then you end up having a, a really good you know, lipid profile and blood sugar levels and risk of heart disease goes down and all that kind of stuff. So you're looking at, so olive oil will actually lower triglycerides and raise the HDL. So it'll make those numbers, it'll improve those numbers directly, which is a direct independent risk factor for heart disease where, where LDLs aren't really, are they an independent risk factor for heart disease? I don't believe they are. I don't believe that literature, I don't follow as closely as I used to, but what's interesting about extra virgin olive oil is there are many ways you could say olive oil improves heart health, but it's the only thing we have. No food, no medicine, only olive oil, extra virgin olive oil will raise HDL. And the other thing it will do is it will improve the function of the HDL. So it makes it a healthier particle. So even if your HDL, like for instance, there's a study in um, Europe and the men started at HDLs of 47, which is very healthy for a male. And the HDL did not change statistically. It went up a little bit, but didn't statistically improve. But the, the particle uh, ability to improve your health changed dramatically. That changed, changed significantly. So what it says is, even if, you're not, if you started a high number, like if you had a 60 HDL and you weren't using olive oil, you, and you start using olive oil, your, your HDL probably won't go up much, but the health of it does. So that's why it's really interesting. But no, no medicine changes HDL. We just don't have it. Right, right. You, you mentioned about fiber. You know, fiber um, is interesting because the, the bile attaches to the fiber. And the bile is like a little Pac-Man, right? Gobbling up toxins in your liver and in your, cleaning your intestinal tract. And if you don't have a high fiber diet, then you're not going to take the, the bile to the toilet. It'll actually get reabsorbed back into your blood, back into your liver. But it sort of goes the other way around too. It's not just a high fiber diet. You have to have the fats to make the bile to mm. attach to the fiber to get it to the toilet. So it's a two-part equation. Is that true? Yeah. And the thing is, um, so, so what, my, why I don't like people just using the word fiber is that uh, I find that people start to use things like Metamucil and uh, the things that are, 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 they just think of the fiber component. But if you tell people to eat more fruits and vegetables and you give them a, you know, I always say fruits at breakfast and lunch, vegetables at, at least lunch and dinner, and, you know, several big servings at each, at each one, you're naturally going to get more fiber. And the problem with fiber in food is we know what foods have soluble fiber, which foods have uh, insoluble fiber, but the chemical analysis for fiber is not good. It's harsher than our, our bodies are. So there's probably more fiber in the food. But I guess, again, I find when I find people focusing on fiber, they end up looking at food labels and synthetic foods and not just saying fruits and vegetables. Fruits and vegetables just come with all these other benefits that make it great. Right. You mentioned food insecurity a minute ago, and you did a study on that with medical students, but I don't think people know what food insecurity is. 
Sure. I had a, when I read your story, I was like, what is that? So yeah. tell us what that is and tell us I about it. I will. I will. And so it's the U.S. government's fancy name for talking about people who don't have enough food. They actually call it food security. Whose food secure? Like you have enough food. So there's a number of definitions, but basically an easy definition is having enough food, um, nutritious food to meet your needs. And you. And they, they, then they add things like you are obtaining it in a you know socially acceptable way, like you're not stealing food. But basically it's, do you have enough food to eat? So you can have a situation, the, the, the study that I initially did was with people who would go to food pantries. So I don't, I think through the whole country, I've worked, I've worked pretty extensively with food pantries and I've been on the Rhode Island Community Food Bank minus two years since 19, since 2005. And because um, you have to cycle off for a couple like these spaces, but I've been very involved with them. So food, if someone goes to a food pantry, they're basically food insecure. And what that means is you don't have enough food for at least some meals out of the month. It gets worse when there are kids involved. Um, so what I said was I wanted to know, because <clears throat> there's a lot of data on food insecurity and everybody's measuring it. This is back like in 2006. Everyone was measuring it, but I couldn't find anyone fixing it. So I said, if I get people, knowing from these, these women with breast cancer, knowing that they said that this was an inexpensive way to eat and it was easy, I thought, and I had worked for Share Our Strength in the 90s and I developed their HIV protocol. Share Our Strength had a chef with a dietitian and you, the people made a meal with you. The folks who came in, they made a meal with you. Mm -hmm. And what I found was it was kind of slowed down because if I said to you, hey, can you chop these celery and you grade this, like some people freeze like, ah, oh, what is chopping? What is grading? So I set this up so we went into food pantries, we made a recipe, olive oil, vegetable starch in front of them in an electric skillet, had them sample it, and then we gave them groceries, enough for that they can make that three meals a week. We gave that during the, um, the six weeks of cooking it was at that time. And then I followed them for six months. I collected all the grocery receipts four weeks before, through the six weeks of cooking, and then six months after. And all I wanted to say was low income people will, will cook this way. Um, we weighed them too because I was afraid that they gained weight. People would, you know, squabble about that. So it turned out they they did they did greatly embrace this. Their food insecurity decreased on all levels, significantly decreased as a number from what you can do on a scale. But also they were going to food pantries less often. Their food stamps were lasting longer. I came at it from all different ways. Uh, but what was interesting was there was no nutrition education as part of this. Like we never said don't buy meat. We just said make these recipes three times a week, and and we never said don't you know, fast food, but fast food went down, meat, um, purchasing of meat went down, snack foods, desserts, and carbonated beverages all went down. Huge decreases in their grocery bills. And, and the thing that I found um, most, um, that I liked best of this study was, I knew these, I met these people in the beginning, and then um, about halfway through the program, the food bank that was helping with it, with this um, we were able to get funding to bring someone in because the food bank was afraid that I was developing a relationship with these people that was positive, but still they wanted to please me. So take me out of it and meet me at the beginning, meet me way at the end. But what was happening was if, if you don't have enough food, enough money for food, it affects, it mainly affects your head, start with mental health, depression. These people were become, becoming, people in the program were becoming so happy. And it was like they were just new people and they were just thrilled they could feed themselves they could feed their kids they could feed their parents it was just it was just a really gratifying experience and so um from that i did it um i so i became interested in food insecurity in general and i went um i tried to initially do some work in the brown university undergrad uh but for various reasons they, they weren't interested in my doing the program which is fine so then i work in the medical school and i went to them and said you know explain this thing and and you are not you're more common than most <laughs> not people said to me 
I don't understand. You don't think they have money for food? But I thought, you know, we undergrads have, have been very much studied in the United States. But most of these kids, if you made it to a medical school, you've gone to a pretty expensive undergrad. Now, maybe it was all covered for you, but chances are you got some bills from that. Now you're in medical school. For four years, you're going to be a student. You don't have a social life. You're only 24 years old. No social life. What if you don't have enough money for food? You're in a new city. All these things I'm thinking could be happening to these people that are pretty young. So when I did that study, um, we found, I believe when we finished, it was 35% food insecure. It was higher than um, it was higher than what you see in undergrads, but it, it could speak to the fact that if this program was advertised and someone didn't have the resources or the ability to cook or, or they worried about food, maybe they went to the program because of that. We might have drawn people, but it wasn't mandatory. Um, but it was very well received in the medical school. And um, we published a paper looking at the, the, the how you put it up together. And now we have one coming out in June that will be the results of, um, we did a wider survey of medical of the medical school to find out food insecurity and what their, what their problems were. Some of it was um, finances, but a, a certain amount of it was the time to cook. I'm sorry, the time to um, grocery shop. And so we were able to get a local um, stop and shop as a big, um, northeast uh, grocery chain. They gave us Peapod, we, uh, the home delivery of food. We got it free for I think three months, and it was only like, like five dollars. But they got a credit. They they were really great to work with, and it just shows that you know I just called them up and said, Hey, can you help us out? We got these food insecure medical students. What you know? What can we work with? And they gave me this. You know, they were very very generous in what they gave us. Wow. So during that study, how many tablespoons of olive oil per day did they eat? Three. Three is my goal. Three is your goal. And that's it, yep. And that's what usually, it usually comes out very close to three when we look at the numbers, like 2.9, you know, plus or minus 1.2 or something. Um, I have anyone that's gone through that, it's all self-report, but that's done a lot in nutrition. I've never mm -hmm. had anyone say to me, no, I'm not using olive oil. If anything, people say how much they enjoy it, um, how great it tastes. Um, there are issues in the industry on what is extra virgin because the United States government doesn't well control the labeling. So if you look for the California ones, they have a little gold seal, and that's the Fandango people. I, I, I'm pretty sure I met them in California because I yeah. go out and talk to the industry. Um, I will not be paid to talk about olive oil. I just think it's such a fantastic food that I will freely talk about it. So I, I did go around to different farms and different groups, and so I, I'm pretty sure I met them. But there's a little seal that says California Olive Oil Council, and that lets you know that it's a certified olive oil. Right, and it has to be certified by the California Certified Organic Farmers. There should be another seal on there. There's another one. Yep, there's another one. So those two seals are the two that you would yeah, you'd be looking for. I want to talk about quality of olive oil in just a second, but I want to maybe just sum up this discussion about your research. Three tablespoons of olive oil per day. Is mm -hmm. that for everybody? Is it uh, contraindicated in anybody with heart disease? And if you could just sum up, you know, what are the benefits that you know for sure people would get if they did three uh, and, and, if, and if you're doing three tablespoons of olive oil per day, do you need to take something out or is it just add that and you're good to go? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the health benefits start at two tablespoons a day, but I say three to be you know, on the safe side. The, the studies out of Europe do divide it by size, like women usually get a little bit less than men, but I just say three tablespoons, that's my goal. Um, there are no downside that I've ever seen. It helps, helps for everything. Um, so what I do, you know, I used to, when I do research, you, you prescribe a certain diet for people. But what I've learned in my clinics is, if I say to people, try to use three tablespoons and have um, 
uh, have it with vegetables. So at lunch, one of those meals can be a salad with a couple of tablespoons. And then my rule of thumb is a tablespoon of olive oil for a couple of vegetables. And I find when people do that, I, I think, I think, and people say it, 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 people say this of me, I try to be positive in my message. So I tell people to do that. And I don't say, and don't eat dessert and don't have that donut, whatever. And what, but what happens is the fat keeps people from getting hungry. So they may want to, by habit, have cookies or chocolate or whatever, but they're not hungry. And they'll, they'll say to me, my desire for sweets has gone way, way down. And I find in my research, when I get people to use olive oil at lunch and dinner, their desire for sweets go down. I think the idea of, of sweets and eating this, you know, this much dessert, just mushrooms in the last 30 years, only because of low fat diets. If you have enough fat at your meal, you're satiated and you don't need to eat between. So to say that you have to take something out is probably correct, but I never tell people what to take out. I just say, this is the way. The other thing I found from my food pantry work was we asked them to, I asked them to change three dinners a week. That was it. So now I work a lot in oncology and I'll say to people, can you try to have a goal of changing three days in a week? You don't have to change every day. And what people come back to me and say is, I feel so much better when I eat this way. I have more energy. I sleep better. You know, my digestion is better. You know, my bowel functions better. Um, you know, I think I'm going to do it a few more days. And so it's like a self-fulfilling thing that pe and it's easy. People say, and it's less expensive. I can't believe how much less I'm spending because people don't realize how much they spend on meat, poultry, seafood. I lump it all together as animal flesh. And it's funny when my students write it back in their papers, animal flesh. But so my thinking is there's not really health issues with egg and dairy but there are with meat, poultry, and seafood, overeating protein uh, is, is becoming, I think, a big issue because we have no mechanism to store protein. Any extra protein we, protein we consume in excessive need is stored as fat. So it's a really good way to get fat. And so I think people are now who are eating, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people ate pieces of chicken that had maybe four ounces of meat on them. Now they're eating these chicken cutlets that are six, seven, eight, nine ounces, and all that extra protein is just going to fat. And people have this illusion of I'm having fish or poultry with, you know, with vegetables and that's really healthy. No, you don't need that much protein. Eating protein, extra protein is not a good thing. So I find that people lose weight better if they just change even three dinners a week. They start, that's what happened in the um, food pantry study. I don't know if I said that, but people lost weight. They lost significant weight loss and then significant decreases in glucose now we're showing with I'm um, doing it now in a clinical setting. So it, it's no, as I say, there's no downside. And I'm doing now um, for our, one of our medical clinics and our HIV clinic, I'm doing a cooking program for these folks and, um, and again, we're seeing the same thing. And this is not in research per se. They signed a consent form because I collect the data, but they're saying I'm cooking for my family. Everything I'm eating tastes better. It's so cheap to eat this way. Um, there's real, as I say, there's, there, there are no downsides to, there are no downsides to eating this way. I think a lot of people, you know, maybe will get it, but I think what people really need to understand is that fat and carbohydrates or starch are the two main sources of fuel, right? So if you have good fats, that'll actually provide satiety for you. It'll actually make you less hungry. It'll make you more satisfied. You won't go to the cookie jar after your meal because you're actually satisfied when you have a tablespoon or so of olive oil with your vegetables and with your salad. And that's pretty much the point. That's probably why people got happier in your pantry, in your, in your insecurity study, because people weren't having the ups and then the downs and the crashes. They were burning fat, which is a stable source of fuel. It gives you satiety through the day, right? And that's why you lose right. weight. Mm -hmm. and you burn and then you also are encouraging your body to burn your own fat throughout the day because you're not on the roller coaster ride of the sugar and the starch is going up and down true true 
Yeah, it makes a big difference. That's the other thing. Another thing I try to get people to do is eat three meals as opposed to snacks. Because if you're eating three meals, um, you have those those um, dips in your insulin, which means you're going to release your fat for energy. Uh, and that gets into meal planning, which I always say, you know, sounds so like 1950s. But meal planning simply means I know roughly what I'm having for dinner. Is it pasta, rice, potatoes, quinoa, whatever. Um, I know roughly what I'm, and then do I have wood vegetables with it, what olive oil. I know what I'm having for lunch. So if it's, you know, a couple of hours before that meal is, is to be had, as an adult, we can say, well, I'm having dinner at six and I'm hungry at 4.30. I mean, I can get to six. I don't need to have a snack. And it allows your body to start to use your own fat. And the other thing is when we eat larger amounts of food, uh, it takes more, it, we, we lose more energy as heat when the food calories are big. If we're snacking all day, we can trap those calories. So snacking is really good for little kids, old people, sick people, people need to lose weight. The rest of us eating a meal is more efficient in the sense of more efficient like for weight control because you're not constantly eating and you're not constantly fueling it and you're not constantly saving calories. Right, right. So um, to follow up on other, other, your other discussion, if you could just sum up all the benefits that you know, eating three tablespoons of olive oh, sure. oil per day, and that'd be like one tablespoon on your vegetables, one on your salad, then the other one just somewhere else. Can you take it straight if you wanted to all at once or no? You can. You can. I get asked that a lot. It's funny. Um, and that's fine. And I know there are certain cultures where that is very much what they do. I've been told the Israelis do it, the Turks do it, parts of Greece do it. But what I try to do is put it with vegetables. So it's like either two at lunch and one at dinner, or even two at lunch and two at dinner. More is, is fine. I really haven't had a problem with it. But t at two tablespoons a day, which in the um, European literature is, is 30 mils, it will lower blood pressure. It improves insulin sensitivity. So it lowers insulin and glucose. So it's really good for um, diabetics. Decreases inflammation, decreases oxidation makes blood less coagulated, um, increases HDL, increases its function related to lower body weight. Uh, there are some studies relowing, I'm sorry, relating it to decreasing waist size at the same number of, of same amount of weight of weight loss. But I don't know if that's really true. That gets down to like this PPAR level down on the, so I, I, I'm not comfortable with that part, but I do know it can be used for weight control. That I know. And it lowers your um, food budget if you're using olive oil as opposed to meat products. So it has, it, as I say, the benefits are really, um, it, 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 there's no food that will do what that does. There's no medicine that will do what that does. And it makes everything taste better. That's, I think, is the bonus to the whole thing. But with regard to heart disease, what's your take on the saturated fat versus the, you know, the monosaturated, so the polyunsaturated? And, and what does olive oil do specifically for heart disease, like plaque, things like that? Is there any studies on that? I'm not sure of plaque, um, but it is, related to, it, is re, it is related to beta endothelial function. There's a group kind nice. of running around the universe that's saying it, it is not related to good, it's related to causing problems in endothelial function, that's not true. It helps nitric oxide release. What that gets into is, um, and this is where it gets tricky in the literature. So for the, like probably up to 10 years ago, they'll just, people will just say olive oil, or they'll say extra virgin olive oil, and that's it. They won't describe it, otherwise describe it. And so you don't really know what they're using. And so I've been involved with the industry from the standpoint of, I want good olive oil. I want good olive oil for research, I want it for my patients. So I got involved contacting companies and getting them to release their phenols, you know, so I know what's going on. And so now I encourage people to say in their studies, where did you get the olive oil? What was the phenol content? Do you know the varietal? Tell as much information as possible so someone can replicate this, this information. 
um, it, it gets a little confusing when you look at the old studies. And I know this group that says it is not good for endothelial function. Um, I know uh, they, the, the study that they're using just said olive oil. And based on the study results, it was probably, when it's, when it's just olive oil, it's, um, it's, like, it, it's, it's almost like, it, like it's, it's been stripped of everything and it's chemically cleaned and it can be sold in some states and some countries, but it's not something that has any health benefits. So that's why you have to be careful. And, and I, so that's why I'm empathetic when people say these things that it does, you know, does bad things. I'll say, no, if you look at what it's doing for olive oil, because all the research in the last 10 years has used extra virgin or say that they do, and then you see these health benefits. I, but I even if it says extra virgin, even if it says extra virgin olive oil, we don't really know for sure it is. I mean, that UC Davis study came out and said 73% of the olive oil tested in the retail market were adulterated. And so there's a lot of that, right? So some there of is, and some of the companies, so for instance, I know um, like the Colavita oil uh, and that study came out poor. Um, but then that family worked to get the good product. They made, they turned around and had a good product. There were other companies that looked at that and they said, you know, I, I, I almost think it's like, they think Americans would just buy anything, you know, this slapped, you know, from, slap a label from Europe and we'll buy it. Hard to say, but um, there are, um, there are some companies, as I say, look for the California seal. Um, the word California on the label does not mean it's from California. There's one company that has the word California on it. And we look, they used to be California olive oil. Now when you turn over the bottle, it's from uh, Spain and Greece and Italy. It's just, it's this mixed up thing. So it is confusing, but there are companies that are reputable. Uh, and that's ones that, you know, as they say, to, to, to get them. I mean, I know what some of them are. I'm not sure if I should use names, but um, I know that there are ones that are better. And I am working with people, the North American olive oil producers, um, they, uh, they, I bet, could be contacted because they work with the um, they work with the whole country. California produces the most, I believe, but there's also um, olive oil that that will eventually be produced in Texas, Georgia. Um, I think Arizona has the trees, but I'm not sure how their industry is. But it, it will be improved. There were people um, that I was consulted when they were working on this labeling to propose to the FDA to try to change it. And right now, I'm trying to get money to compare all extra virgin olive oil to olive oil. Because right now, health people just say olive oil. They don't make that distinction. So people don't know. One of the rules of thumb, I think, is, um, and it, it's by no means hard and fast, because then I'll get emails over this, but it isn't hard and fast. If you think of how olive oil is produced, and the United States is produced pretty effect efficiently because they can use machines to strip some of the trees, so it's made, um, it made it a less expensive cost. But you think in most of Europe, you still have hand picking. So that is very labor intensive, very time consuming. And then you're gonna make the oil, you're gonna ship the oil, you're gonna pay tariffs on the oil. So if you have a standard bottle of oil and it's less than, you know, my ballpark is like 15, $18. If it's less than that, it can't be extra virgin olive oil if it's from out of this country. Now, if it's from this country, you can get really like Colavita sells, Colvin Estates, they sell about $10 for the standard bottle in the restaurant. And so what I, we'll go through with patients, particularly my low-income patients is, I show them labels of bottles that are reputable. And I'll say, so you go to the market and this one says 10 or $11. And then you're looking at one that says $6 and you're thinking, oh, I'll buy the six. The six has no health benefits. $4 more, you get the health benefits. So I think with, if you look at how many tablespoons are in a bottle, and if you're using two or three tablespoons a day, you can say, all right, this bottle for $10 is gonna last me you know, 10 days, 15 days, whatever. So it's not that much. And all these things it does, it's so much cheaper than medicine. 
that is, a, you know, so we try to bring it down that way. But I'm very empathetic. You know, I, I tell people when olive oil is on sale, I mean, I, I'm very empathetic to costing. So it is something that I look at. Can you, can you describe for us, I'm sure people would be love to hear, like when you actually make olive oil, what is extra virgin olive oil versus olive oil? Because it's, sure. it's, just, it's just the end of the press versus the beginning of the press. Is that right? So by a definition, that's a good question because by definition, all extra virgin olive oil is cold press and fresh press. That's how it's made. So those things are marketing terms. So, so it's you the see olive cold is, press and and first press, right? First press. Mm -hmm. Those that, that's a, you know, if it's to be extra virgin olive oil, it has to be that. So to be qualified for extra virgin, there are chemical tests they do, um, but what to be extra virgin, there are sensory evaluations, smell and taste that say it is is free of defects. So part of the problem with the industry is, and I understand why this could be a problem, is they make this great olive oil at this plant and it's bottled and they send it out. Now you as the consumer, what you do with it, you know, if you, you, most of the health benefits and flavor are lost when you expose it to oxygen. So a lot of companies now are making much tighter um, holes to open and they make like the pop-up things of this company, Cobra Mistake, that makes the pop-ups. Um, so you're limiting how much oxygen is, is coming into the bottle. Then light, I mean, I don't think you can buy it in clear bottles anymore. There was a time you could. I think everyone uses a, a, a refracted one. And then um, temperature. So I think people know you don't store it above your stove, you know, where it looks pretty, but it's going to be ruined. You don't store it next to the refrigerator or next to the dishwasher or whatever. You store it where it's going to be good temperature. When you open a bottle, you use that bottle. For the, unless you have a big household. You basically open a bottle, use it, open a bottle, use it. Don't get a whole bunch open because now you're going to decrease your health benefits. So extra virgin means it passes chemical tests and a sensory test. In Europe and I think Australia, they have also virgin, which has the health properties, but it's not, you know, has, doesn't have all the sensory properties. So this is where um, the FDA right now um, does not include um, enough tests. They just use, this, I think they just use acidity. So it's below a certain um, free fatty acid content it's considered extra virgin. And so we're trying to get them, or well, there's North American Olive Oil Association, um, hoping does this, trying to get them to change it. So the test that will be used will make sure that we're getting extra virgin olive oil. So I think if people posted, companies posted on their website at time of production, what this looked like, that's when they have it. Now when they ship it out and you know something happens, they can't be responsible because you can't have people pulling stuff off the shelf and saying, no, it's not what it is or whatever. So that's where the companies get a little concerned. They can't put it on the bottle, but I think if they put it on a website, I think that would be useful. Hmm. So I would imagine that, that, you know, there was so much debate about whether olive oil can be used for cooking or not for cooking. And in the early days, everybody said, no, don't use it for cooking, use other things for cooking, coconut, or other things that are more heat stable. But then, it started to come out that when they actually were doing research on actual, you know, extra virgin olive oil versus the stuff from the grocery store shelf that probably wasn't extra virgin mm -hmm. olive oil or adulterated, then all of a sudden they found out that you actually could use it for cooking and it was actually quite heat stable. So what's yeah. your take on, on the cooking aspects of olive oil? Yeah, so you are correct. So I think when you happened years ago was people used olive oil. So that olive oil is a, um, a less stable product. It's not, it's, it's just more stripped than um, extra virgin would not be stripped. So they were using something that had a lot of free fatty acids in it, which would break down and that would lower the heat point. So one of the things, important points to think about is we don't cook at smoke point. People bring up the smoke point of the oil all the time. We don't cook at smoke point. So that's not a relevant 
topic, but if you look at that, extra virgin does have the highest smoke point if it's extra virgin olive oil. So there was a study done, um, UC Davis did one, and then there's people in Australia did one, and there's another one. I think it's Australians too. The Australians do a lot of olive oil research. And what they found was that olive oil, extra virgin olive oil was the most stable to cook with, and it held up over a period of time. The studies that are cited when people say you can't cook with olive oil, there were six that were around for a long time. Uh, they all took olive oil to 170 degrees centigrade, which is 375, fry temperature. The shortest time reported was five hours. The longest time was 30 hours. So if you heat olive oil for five hours, yeah, you're going to break it down. But in a home cooking situation, that does not happen. There was a study in Spain where they looked at cooking vegetables in water, water with a little bit of olive oil, uh, saute, and then like, like the them were fry is like an inch of olive oil. And what they found was the more olive oil you used, the olive oil components got sucked up into the vegetables and it made the vegetables actually healthier than cooking them in water. So it was, it showed that not only can you cook with olive oil, it will make your vegetables a lot healthier. There were two studies now that show that. So was that because it was imparting the, the antioxidant benefit from the olive oil to the food and then and, yep. and actually mitigating some of the acrylamides, the, the heat damaged free radicals that happened. I saw one study that showed that it was, that, uh, was with mice and they, and they gave them um, olive oil on their food and it, it significantly lessened the kidney damage from some of these acrylamides, which are the, oh, that's the interesting. toxins that come from heating up your foods. Is that how yeah, that I, don't, study? I don't follow the animal one, but these, these ones looked at human ones. And what they did was look at the, um, the phenols and the olive oil. The phenols are what make it healthy, P-H-E-N-O-L-S. Sometimes you, people call them polyphenols, but phenols, my understanding is, is the acceptable term. They get pulled into the vegetables. So you're, you're making, and they're not getting lost at all in the, in the cooking process. They're getting pulled into the vegetable, and that's how they make it healthier. They do function as antioxidants, but they also have all those other health benefits I, 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 I talked about. Um, and so there's other things that the olive oil would do, when, the phenols, when they get in your body. I read one study where the difference in the polyphenols or the phenols, as you say, um, was something in the range of um, 50 to 1,000 milligrams per kilogram of olive oil, mm -hmm. that the range yes. was massive. It was, yeah. And so this, so this is an interesting thing. Um, so if it's less than 50, it's considered olive oil. Some people say less than 20, but less than 50. So that means there's no health benefits. Some retail ones have around 90, but some of the ones, like I mentioned, like Cola Vita, Cobra State, some of the other ones, they have closer to 300, which is a really good level. The health benefits start, when you look at studies that list the total phenol, the health benefits start at 150. That's when you can see an HDL go up. Uh, and then for most of the health benefits, if they compare like 150, 160 to 300 to 500, that you see this graded response in how things improve. So it is better to have higher amounts. Um, but, you know, that's the question, what is the minimum you need? And this is what we talk about in the literature all the time. If we could figure out the minimum, that would be helpful to people. Um, but it can go up to a thousand. And, and sometimes some of them have strong taste to them. And so sometimes a thousand can be a really strong, strong, um, yeah like a sharp taste, but sometimes it's just like a deep taste. And you know, I, when I talk to students about it, what I say, it's simpler in some ways to red wine. Like you could say this red wine is just full of tannins and really, you know, tasty. And then you have like a Pinot Noir, which is sort of fruity, but it could have the same health benefits. So it depends on the, it depends on the, the, the olive they're using, but they will go up as high as that. Some of the, um, there's one um, Pinot that's called oleocanthal, and it comes from the word um, bite on the back of your your 
your um, throat and it will literally make your eyes water. And when you suck in the olive oil, that's how they taste it. They put some in their mouth and then they slurp back. And when it hits the back of your throat, you can't help but cough. You can't help but your eyes burn. And, and apparently it's like, it's a thing with some people that, oh, this is great, you know? So it's like, it's kind of funny the way people look at it. But um, when you add an olive oil tasting, it's pretty interesting when you see the people that are trained to do this because there's a scale they use, um, one to five or one to 10. And um, I've been present at these because I've been lecturing on the health benefits. And I'm so impressed when like in this 40 people in the room and a computer, they put their number up and it's like, everything's like 1.7, 1.72, 1.68. They're all, they're all around each other. It's not like someone chooses a one and someone chooses a five. They just, they know what they're doing. And that's why, you know, I see real confidence in people doing taste testing. I, I think it's a very impressive skill. It is a skill. You have to learn, you have to be trained, you have to be certified all the time. They send you blind samples and you have to come out, you know, to correct, to still stay on these panels. Um, but it's, it's a pretty cool thing that they do, I think. Yeah. And so with the, the, the phenol content, do the, do the companies actually publish that information? Is that something that's available typically, or is it, is it crop by crop and batch by batch? It is. It's done, it's done annually. Um, and so when they, they know some of the companies that I think it's becoming more and more common in California in particular. Um, but that's why I'm, I'm trying to say the California industry, would they start putting it on their website? And if they do that, Will they pull other people into it saying, well, you know, they have it, we have to have it type of thing. But at least it would give people a, a knowledge of, you know, what am I starting with for phenols? What, which one is better? And, and people are very interested in winning contests for taste. And as a general statement, if they want something for taste, chances are it's a good oil health wise, but not always, you know? So, and, it, and again, it gets into what do you like? What do I like? Um, if, if I like one, maybe I like when they have a lot of flavor. And, and again, with the red wine comparison, um, I'll say to my students when I was in college, if people drank wine, they drink like pink, bad Zinfandel, you know? And now 40, 50 years later, people demand a full bodied red. And so I think when people taste good olive oil, and I see this happening all the time, when they taste good olive oil, they won't go back. They won't go back to this insipid tasting thing. They want a flavor to it, uh, which is an interesting thing because when canola was created, that was the whole point. U.S. Uh, health officials said Americans won't take an oil with taste. We have to come up with something that's high in monounsaturated fat, but it has right. no taste. I remember those editorials in the 80s thinking, really, hmm, that's interesting. Oh, well, it has a nice taste to it. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I'm finding when people, um, and I did a study with men with prostate cancer and I used a high phenol, it was like 900 phenols, 900 total phenols compared to like 200. And we chose the extremes because we just wanna see what happened. And I was a little worried but if, so they randomly assigned to the order, but when they started with 200 and went to 900, that was fine. But if they started at 900, then had to go to 200, they weren't happy with the 200. They were like, oh, I really like that other oil. And I said, well, they're both extra virgin. You know, there's just difference. But they, I don't remember a guy, it was only 20 guys, but I don't remember a guy saying to me, I don't like this one. They just, they just really liked the flavor of the higher phenol one. And there was a whole range of guys, different ages, different, you know, nationalities. It was just, it wasn't just one blended sample of people. Yeah, I think it's that, I think you, you sort of do acquire a taste for it. And, and mm -hmm. once you get a taste for those phenols and you know that, well, at least we think that when you feel that bite in the back of your throat, you have a really good olive oil. But when you actually get a taste for it and, and you look for that, I think it's, uh, you know, it has to hurt good for it to be healthy for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So um, anything else you want to share with us before we wrap up here? This has been fascinating. I love it. So your recommendation is three tablespoons minimum per day for everybody mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. the board. Yep. And the one tablespoon per cup of vegetables. One tablespoon yeah. per cup of vegetables. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and these are vegetables. You put it on after you cook your vegetables or are you cooking with your vegetables? Does that count? Cook them into it. Cook them into it. Cook them right yeah, into, cook it. into it. Yep. You can roast okay. with it. You can cook with it. Um, Right. Uh, you can just use them anyway. But if you cook them into it, you get more into it. People you probably got canola oil because people didn't like to put olive oil in their brownies because it made it taste like... You, know. <laughs> you can actually bake with it. So when I was doing that cookbook, um, uh, I've, I love food. It's how I ended up in nutrition. I, when I went to um, undergraduate, I started as a plant science major and I took a class in nutrition. I was like, ah, oh, this is what I want to do because I love food. But in the 70s, it was all nutrients. It wasn't food-based. So I couldn't figure out what I was going to do with it. So I'm glad you know, I landed blessed that I ended up with this career. Um, but when I started making baking with it, that was my thinking, like what's going to happen? And anytime I make a muffin, a cookie, whatever, people always comment on the texture favorably. Um, I have people say to me, oh, these are the best muffins, you know, I ever tasted. And, and it makes a really good crumb, you know, like the muffin crumb. But it really, uh, it doesn't, you can't taste it. The only thing I've not been able to make with olive oil is a good frosting. That failed miserably. That did not taste very good. But other than that, um, and then, you know, so it's like, you probably have this in Colorado or in, on the West Coast, too. Um, there's like restaurants in, in New York City and in Boston where they'll give you a homemade ice cream, put olive oil on it and put some sea salt. And it's really a good flavor. I mean, you think about it, you think, oh, it doesn't, I admit it didn't sound good the first time I served it, but I thought, well, let me try this because I'm eating everything with olive oil. And I have to tell you, it was pretty good. And it's just, you think about it, it's a fat with the olive oil, the little like the salted caramel kind of thing. Um, you know, you can do a lot with olive oil. Yeah, I think that you clearly have acquired a taste. If you can put it on your <laughs> ice cream and get away with it, no doubt about that. <laughs> well, um, Mary, thank you so much for all your research, and uh, I hope we send a lot of folks your way to read your research. It's uh, Her website is medfooddiet.com. That's medfooddiet.com. She's written a couple of books. The two books you've written are the cookbook. What's the title of that? Uh, the Pink Ribbon Diet. And the so that was written, diet. yeah, The Pink Ribbon Diet, that was written to get recipes to people. And so on my website, there are recipes. And I tell people, if you know how to cook, you go to my website you can see how easy these recipes are. And they're, they're, and you can add many things to them, like garlic. And they've kept them meant to be kept simple because some people just like simple food. If you want more, the cookbook on Amazon is very inexpensive, 10, 11, maybe $12 top. The reason for the cookbook was to get recipes to people. That's what I really found people needed. But I have, I have to say, over the years, that's been out 10 years now, over the years, I get emails from all over the world. People who had breast cancer diagnosis picked it up and they found it useful to look at how I can work with food because a lot of, um, lot of clinics still are very um, medicine-based and, they, and they, you know, they use, they use um, older guidelines for nutrition. And this is a way that people can actually eat in a way that make them healthy. Uh, the other one was called Low-Fat Lies, and that came out in 99, I think, 99, 98 or 99. Um, and at that time, low-fat diets were all the rage. And so we did get really interesting press on that, like a lot of pushback. Um, and it could be revamped, but the message still holds. I mean, it's still selling books, which is interesting. But the message still holds that, that the whole low-fat diet thing was a fraud, uh, and it was just perpetrated by people you know, working in that area. You know, It's like people who worked in low-fat diets got together and came up with these guidelines. Um, not quite as simple as that, but it wasn't like they looked at what was going to happen. And you just think the spinoffs are just really sad. Obesity and diabetes and cancer and heart disease is just, 
it's it's just unfortunate. And the food doesn't taste good. Without fat, the food isn't going to taste good. Did you ever run across, just because you wrote the book, the, the, um, the Pink Ribbon Diet, which is for breast cancer survivors, did you ever run across any research that the olive oil would actually block the uptake of estrogens into the breast tissue? No, but that's an interesting thought. Oh, that's interesting. Well, iodine does that. that. Certain things do that. And I was just curious if, you, if uh, that's one of the reasons why olive oil does protect the breasts. Hmm. I don't know. That could be interesting. Yeah. They, there's things they've done on the, um, in, in animal studies and in cellular models, which if they could scale up to humans would be interesting to look at. I am not aware of that one. I should look into that because that would make that interesting. Yeah, I just I, I just was curious. It just was in the back of my head. I thought I'd ask because because it is so good for breast cancer. You wrote a whole book about it, um, yeah. but we'll both dig into it and figure it out. Good, Mary. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do. Thank you, um, Dr. Great. John. I appreciate uh, your I'd interest. I'd love to have you back sometime. So sure. appreciate it. Okay, great. thank you. Thank you.